Hi, welcome to Ariva. This is the great podcast of We Fixed Real Estate. And we are here today with Misty McAfee, your host extraordinaire. We have Fred Glick and we have a guest, Eli. Eli, tell me how to pronounce your last name. Melamed. That's what I thought. I should have just gone for it. Melamed. And you are a real estate attorney, correct? That is correct. Good long-term friend of Fred, and please introduce yourself. So, yeah, that's the, all of those statements are correct. I've known Fred a long time. We met actually before I became a lawyer. I was in law school when I met Fred. Um, right. We met uh, at what was formerly the ROC, the Real Office Centers, on uh, 6th and Arizona. Yep. And uh, we hit it off because we're both... Well, anybody who listens to this podcast knows about Fred, but I'm like, <laughs> oh, I've been quiet, dude. This is just great real estate stuff. It changes today, though. <laughs> well, we hit it off, and we've been working together. And uh, you know, Fred asked me to come on the on the podcast and give some give some information to the listeners. So I'm here. I've been practicing law uh, since 2014, and my specialty, my focus, is in transactional business and real estate. I deal a lot with purchases, sales, leases, due diligence, and uh, I also advise people with respect to disputes. Uh, Sometimes you can't uh, negotiate your way out of one and you have to litigate it, but we always try to avoid that whenever possible. And uh, I always try to advise my clients that the best thing you can do is is, uh, set yourself up to prevent problems rather than having to deal with them. Brilliant. Nice. Great. Well, we are super excited to have you here. And we were having this great conversation about cryptocurrency that we really should have pressed record before. But um, we're going to just keep going with it. Let me just say one thing and then we'll move on because I want it on tape. In the end, the Winklevi will be wealthier than the Zuckerbergs. It's exciting. I know. That's all you need to know about cryptocurrency. Google it, kids. Okay. (laughs) So I wanted to bring Eli on because uh, something that each seller and buyer have to do when they sell or buy a house is have a contract because everything in real estate must be in writing. Just remember that, period. Everything. Every little, oh, I'll do this, they'll do that, has to be in writing, not negotiable. So knowing that, we use a standard contract. Here we're going to talk about uh, the state of California, and we're going to go over just the basic contract. There are addendums and other hoochie-watchies based on situations, but we just want to do the regular ones. So uh, I brought Eli on, and what I thought I'd do is go through this a um, little bit kind of paid, not word by word, but kind of in a, in chunks of what these things are. I have mine up. Does everybody have their copy up that's from the Slack channel? Just so we can follow along at home, kids. And yes, we are all at home, of course. Happy pandemic to you. We taped this on uh, Friday, January 22nd. 48 hours of the air smelling better. All right, so... 
When you see the California contract, the first thing it's going to talk about is disclosure regarding real estate agency relationship. We can be real simple with this. And let let me just paraphrase this, Eli, and then you can jump on. Basically, it's saying who represents who. You're represented by a, a buyer's agent. You're represented by the seller's agent. Or there could be a situation where you're represented by one agent, both the buyer and the seller, that's called dual agency. And later we'll put in some sound effects that have a boo, boo, boo. We don't do dual agency. That means that we as a brokerage would represent, as, as an agent, me, would represent both the buyer and the seller. I know everything about the buyer. I know everything about the seller. We're not going to do that. It's like a, an attorney. Hey, hey, Eli, would you represent someone who's committed a crime and prosecute them? You know, it's it- not that I could, but yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to do. Um, you know, you want to as a consumer, you want to be well aware of who's representing you in a transaction because it's it's really important that a broker has their client's best interest at heart. You know, it's kind of a cornerstone of real estate brokerage, much like it is as an attorney. You know, I have to put my client's best interest ahead of my own interests, ahead of anybody else's interest. And so when you've got different brokerages and different agents working on different sides of a transaction, you're, you know, you're usually never going to have a conflict of interest because, you know, two different sides, each representing their side, um, you know, there's really just no overlap there. There's no, there's very, very few ways, except if they know each other, maybe they got some kind of backroom deal, but there's usually not an issue. Um, the bigger issue arises when you've got, like like you were saying, for dual agency. Um, this is something that a lot of uh, consumers, you know, I don't want to say they fall prey to it, but there's really not a better term. Um, they fall prey to it in the sense that they believe that because they're being represented by one agent and that the other side is being represented by a different agent, even if they're in the same brokerage, that somehow each of those agents is going to be pulling for and ensuring that they are protecting their client's best interest. And the problem here is that it's the same brokerage that is benefiting from this, from the transaction on both sides. So what ultimately ends up happening in my opinion and in my experience is that whenever you've got a dual agency situation, you almost always, almost always have to assume that it's the, uh, it's the listing agent, the, the agent representing the buyer. And the brokerage is always going to take the, the buyer's side. Uh, I'm sorry, the seller. I, seller side, yeah. I meant to say the seller side. I got this completely. I looked at the word buyer. I apologize. Uh, yeah, it's they're, they're taking the seller side because what they've got is what's called typically what they've got is an exclusive right to sell. And that means that they've got an agreement with the owner of the property, the seller, that's, that states that once this property is sold, this brokerage is entitled to a commission. A buyer's agent usually just doesn't have that. A buyer's you know a buyer's representative does not usually have any sort of agreement that entitles them to a specific compensation from the buyer. So usually the way that commissions work is that you're going to have the commission come from the seller to the seller's broker. And then the seller's broker will usually offer a split to incentivize a uh, buyer's agent to come in and show the property, et cetera, et cetera, to sell the property, if you will. So when you've got a dual agency situation, 
you've got the same brokerage representing the buyer's interest and the seller's interest, but really who's paying? Well, it's the seller. Yeah. As a buyer, but wait, really? No, it's not the seller. You know who's paying? The buyer. The buyer is ultimately the paying. The buyer is ultimately paying. It's the seller. Rebates, et cetera, et cetera. Just a little out but I mean. I would say yeah. that the buyer is funding the commission, but ultimately it's the seller that's paying. Yeah, good way so, of putting it. Because the contract was already done with the seller as to what it would right. be ahead of time. Right. So we know what the commission is going to be as a percentage of the purchase price. We just don't know what the purchase price will be. And in that case, or rather in that event, it's pretty evident, at least on its face, that it's always going to be to the benefit of the brokerage that's that's the dual agent to to really take the side of the seller as much as possible. Get yeah. that price up. You That's know. why you want to just run the other direction when you're here, dual agency. Correct. You know, it, it, people said to me, "Oh, well, the agent uh, cut it down from five percent to four percent, so I saved some money, you know, and and he got me a really good deal." Yeah, dude, seriously. But you know what? The sad thing is, even if you do that and you get screwed in the California market, in the end, you're going to come out anyway. It's just going to take you longer to make money. Because, you know, we just, this crisis of not enough properties, it's, it's real. Um, the house, the house always wins. Yeah, exactly. No pun intended. The house so always other, wins. One right. other thing with this representation and anyone who's using any buyer broker and this, you know, matters, it, it's not by state, it's, it's anywhere. Um, also, besides the fact you want to ask the broker that's representing you, what's going on, who are you representing, you want to ask them ahead of time a couple of other questions. The one that you should absolutely ask is, can you tell me in the last three years of all the errors and emissions claims against you and or the company you work for? They will probably drop the phone because no one will have ever asked them that question before. And the other question is, what do you charge? You have a right to know because, like we were just saying 30 seconds ago or so, plus track of time anyway, um, you just <laughs> just completely lost track. What was I saying? Anyway. You want to ask them. You have a right to know the price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, the E&O. And um, you got to ask them what they charge because you have a right to know. You have to edit this. <laughs> that was one of those senior moments for sure. Um, yeah, senior so, moment or something else. Yeah. Well, it, it seemed to be both. <laughs> I mean, okay. No, I, I'm, I'm not a senior yet. It's getting close. It's getting close. So you got to work for that vaccine. Oh man, it's like it's like that's the biggest bummer. I, my birthday is the end of February. I turned 65 and it's like, no, I want to be 65 now, <laughs> you know, or wait a second. Can I negotiate that? My second shot is going to be within 30 days. So I should have my first shot within 30 days. So you've, you've completed the vaccine while I've had my birthday. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, of course. Well, thank you. You should just thank you the you can start the, uh, the process today but anyway you, get, back you should get back to anyway because you're like you know just about you're just, just about. about yeah i mean it's yeah. a 64 but i'm 64 and 11 twelfths you know yeah yeah i support you thank you thank you i i, I need one of those I, online campaigns 
by the time you get an appointment, you will be 65. Probably. <laughs> Anywho, so let's keep going down this thing. Hey, uh, Eli, what can you tell us about Civil Code Sections 2079.13-2079.24, parentheses 2079.16, appears in the front, close parentheses. This is Star all the sexy. This is all the sexy talk, y'all. Yeah. Yeah, this is the, uh, well, sexy is one way of putting it. Uh, this is all the stuff that is basically telling you the basis on which the agent that's representing you is obligated to disclose, first of all, that they're licensed, most importantly. And secondly, <coughs> excuse me. And secondly, uh, that they're obligated to disclose exactly what their relationships are with the party. I mean, this is important stuff because naturally you don't want anybody who's not licensed. You don't want somebody who's purporting to be licensed and, you know, just a complete shyster showing up and getting a listing or representing you and potentially getting paid, you know. Um, but you also want to know that the person that's representing you is also representing you. And that this codifies much of that. I mean, I won't get into the nitty gritty and the details, but that's that's the short version of it. Yeah. And I hope people listening to the podcast are you know, the kind of people who are going to be diligent about this stuff. So Google everybody, go to the state website and look up their name, their, ask them their license number. And if they're, they have half a brand, they put their license number in their thingamajiggy. I mean, Misty's seen it, my, my signature is like seven miles long. I just put all the license numbers. You want them? Here it is. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I think that's an obligation, actually, when you're doing any sort of communication for commercial yeah. purposes or any sort of advertisement or mailing list or anything like that, any sort of proposals, I'm, I'm almost certain you have to include your license number. Yeah, uh, it believe is. it or not, some states do, some states don't, but I put them in it anyway. <clears throat> and, and MLS numbers, all that kind of stuff. Okay, and then there's another form in the uh, car form, possible representation of more than one buyer or seller disclosure and consent this is basically the let the dual agency guy off the hook one sort of kind of it's kind of that you know this is really just the, is dovetailing with the first thing we talked about which is saying yeah. that to the extent that there are multiple buyers or multiple sellers um that this broker or one of the brokers in the uh involved in the transaction may be representing more than one of them again it's it's intended to give you notice so that a, a reasonably savvy purchaser, which most people are not, unfortunately, uh, can raise the alarm and say, wait a second, I don't want to be represented by you if you're representing the seller or you're representing a different buyer. Because now I've got competing, you know, if my offer isn't high enough, you're going to try to get my offer up, you know, or if you represent the seller, you're going to try to get my offer up. Or if... Uh, you know, you've got another offer that you're trying to submit to the seller. Well, you want both of them to look equally good. So at least one of them gets selected. You know, we don't want that. We don't want um, we don't want our, our clients to be in a position where they have to negotiate against themselves because the broker is potentially representing somebody else. And there's a conflict of interest. You know, Eli, this brings up another question. So what if you go out to a property? And see the property with an agent from the XYZ company, and she like hounds you to death every day with texts and 
emails. Do you like it? Do you want to make an offer? And it's like, lady, go away. They don't sign anything. Mm -hmm. And then somebody comes to me, same people a month later, and they want to see that property and tell me that story. Should they worry that this other broker is going to come after them? What it, what is that limit of procuring cause? This is a great question because people really have this all the time. Yes, yeah, so it, it it does depend on the circumstances. Uh, I would I would typically tell people that if they have just had a conversation with someone or if they visited a property with someone, but they've not submitted an offer, they have not put anything in writing as far as representation. You know, there is such a as I think I mentioned earlier, there's a there's a form that some brokers will use for representation of a buyer. Um, you know, yeah, a, we do. We, we do. <laughs> do that. No, some people do that. And, yeah. and it's, people, it's not exclusive. It's, it's typically non-exclusive, but there are some instances where they require exclusive representation. Um, if you haven't done something to that effect where you have not represented to the broker or to a, a third party that the broker is representing you, then you're probably not going to have to worry about it. Um, typically, this happens a lot with um, the, you see the problems with the with dual agency type of deals where you've got a uh, broker who is basically representing the seller with one agent and then saying if you want to submit an, an offer, you have to use you know you go visit the property. Then they tell you, okay, yeah, this this is our agent who will represent you as the buyer. Yeah, we do that in Pennsylvania, and um, there's a name for it. Uh, it's slipping my mind right now, but it's within the same brokerage, and one buyer has a representative. They have their own representative, and the seller's got their own representative of physical persons, but within the brokerage. Yeah, same brokerage. Yeah. That's another, again, that's another one of those things that you want to look out for as a buyer. You want to pay attention as a buyer or, or even as a seller to some extent, um, you know, because sometimes what they'll do is they'll, you know, they'll try to work with you on commissions. You know, they'll say, okay, well, well, we want X commission. If we can get X price, you know, certain price equals a certain commission. So if we can do better, then we'll take a smaller piece of a bigger pie. And, you know, if we can't do that, then we'll, you know, there, there, there are fewer instances like that. But yeah. on the buyer's side, this type of stuff can lead to problems because now you've toured the house that you found on Zillow or you found on Redfin or whatever it was. And you maybe they're telling you, you know, this is your broker now. This is your representative now. And some people just don't know that they have the choice of using their own selected representative. So what happens is they think that they're obligated to submit an offer through this person just because the listing agent said you have to submit an offer through this person. They're just depending on people literally being ignorant of, of their rights. Right. That's, yeah. a, that's part of it, unfortunately. Which, which is the whole sales mentality of everything. They try to mask as much as possible, give you the least information you they need to give you to get their big slice of the pie. And I'm sorry, that's that's the, the realtor model. We're done. Okay, next page, wire fraud, blah, blah, blah. Dudes, we will work it out for you with the escrow companies. You want to talk on the phone with the escrow company and really make sure that it's the right people to do the wires with. Um, 
They have secure emails. Just there are some fake emails going around. Somehow they hack these agents' sites and get to their emails because they're using AOL.com as their professional email site. So, all right, well, let's get to the meat. Here we go. The California Residential Purchase Agreement and Joint Escrow Instructions, Carform RPA-CA, revised December 2018. In other words, it's working so far, we're not going to fix it. So I, I, I don't know if there's anything new coming down the pike. So let's go down. Okay, so this is pre- pretty basic information that's a fill-in-the-blank thing. What date was it actually prepared? Now, prepared is different than signed. Okay, so remember that. Uh, this is an offer from, we're putting in their names, putting in all the information about where the property is, what the price is when the close of escrow will be. And you can either put an exact date or a number of days after the seller and you absolutely 100% agree upon everything in writing. So this is something you'll negotiate. I'm not going to go into the details of each and everything and how to negotiate this. I know, because Misty's giving me the signal to keep going. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, uh, this says the, the, the very next thing it says, you got all these disclosures that were above and attached. So you have to have, cause it's done gives all the brokerages names and numbers. And then we get to the initial deposit. So the initial deposit normally on transactions in California is 3% of the sale price. And that comes down from, and Eli, you might know more than I do, it was a court decision of someone's escrow as to what was reasonable, and that's kind of what they've uh, used the standard. Yeah, it's not a hard and fast rule. I think it's more traditional now. Right. There was, I forget the name of the case, I'll be honest with you, but uh, there was a case, there have been several since then, having to do with liquidated damages. And the general holding is the the reason this matters for all you listeners is that when you make a deposit uh, under a purchase contract like the one we're discussing, what you're really saying is if I remove my contingencies and agree to buy this property and then I don't, then you can keep my deposit and that will constitute liquidated damages. And liquidated damages is in the place of damages that one would get if they had to sue you, right? So if they had ordinary contract damages, it would be the value of the contract. And what we're agreeing to in a contract like this is that I'm willing to put up a specific amount of money that will basically act as the penalty in a sense. I, I, hes- I hesitate to use that word specifically because the 3% tradition is put in place due to the fact that liquidated damages clauses are not enforceable if they're seen as a penalty, if they're not reasonably related to not only the value of the contract, but also the uh, likelihood of of that being a you know either a successful contract or there's a number of factors that go into it. Um, but the whole point is that it has to be reasonable in in the circumstances. So if you've got a purchase contract where they're saying you need to put down 25% deposit, right? And for whatever reason you want to you know you want to terminate or cancel the agreement and you can't get a hold of them on the last day of your contingency period. And then the obviously it passes and they said, no, we never received notice. You're obligated. We're taking 25%. Uh, you know, that, that's not reasonable because what it is, is it's such a large fee for something that has 
relatively little harm to the to the seller. There's relatively little harm because he could theoretically, or I shouldn't say he, the seller could theoretically be taking backup offers. They could have you know another offer in hand that they're ready to replace this one with. So something you know around three percent is is typical because it's not prohibitive to the seller. I'm sorry to right. the buyer, and it's not a penalty. And it's not something that that you won't be able to enforce. I mean, I've seen deposits that are higher. Yeah, um, typically vacant land, you're gonna you're gonna go with five percent. Um, that's that seems also to be kind of traditional. But again, five percent on a much lower dollar, you know, dollar value land typically is not as valuable or expensive as a you know finished structure. Yeah. And I've so, and I've seen. I've seen stuff back in Pennsylvania. We five percent, ten percent. They'll take two different deposits. One like five hundred dollars now, and then five thousand later. I mean, it's crazy. But yeah, basically three percent. Just do it that way. It you know it makes you think twice before leaving too, and that's kind of the idea. 